that's the old one. Okay, Doc, can you clip it? We're letting you in on these romantic scenes. Um, okay. Chaucer. If you get out your lyric, the lyric packet, it's, it's the last poem on that lyric sheet that I gave you last week of the medieval lyrics, remember? We are going back to the medieval lyrics. It's the very last one on the back page. It's called Gentle Lessa. No, um, I don't know if there are any extras in that basket. I, there may be. It should say medieval poems. Can anybody look on and share? Do any? There should be some in that basket. Do you have, Doc, are there any? No? Let it go. Let it go. Let's start. Let's start. Cecilia, Bob's got one. You can share. You can look on. Doc, can you, can you let... Suzanne. Can you give yours to Michelle? You can look on at Mary's. Let's start. This is Chaucer. <clears throat> so this is closer to Shakespeare's time than the other medieval poems. But it's still that Middle English. Okay? So you can hear our English tongue developing and also get some sense of its roots that it, if we went back to old English you you almost wouldn't be able to understand it it's so different this is Chaucer around 1400 a poem called Gentilessa so Gentilessa would have um, in the medieval English it would have meant something like gentleness but it, for Chaucer it would have it would have um, carried a meaning of virtue or a nobility, um, a virtue of spirit. Okay, um, knights, good knights, would have had gentle lesson. They would have been able to fight a war. They would have been able to cut heads off and still love um, a lady. Okay, gentle lesson. The first stroke, father of gentilessa, what man that claimeth gentil for to be, must follow his tracer and all his wittes dresser. Virtue to soa and vices for to flee, for under virtue longeth dignity. Um, 
our gentleness, our virtues go back to Adam. That's where all things came from. Um, so we long to return to recover something of that virtue that we had in the garden, but that we've lost. So he says, um to sowa and visis fort to flay, for unto virtue longeth dignite, and nach the refers, softly dare I say. We long for it, not the reverse. Alwer he mitra krona or diadem, mitre crown and diadem. Remember, all of us are called to be priests, prophets, and kings. So we long to recover this original dignity that we once had before the fall. This first stoka was full of rightwishnissa, truer of his word, sobra, piteous and fray, cleaner of his ghost and loved business, against the visa of slaughter in honest stay. Armed but his heir love virtue, as did he, he is not gentle, though he richer seem, or where he mitra kruno or diadem. He longs to return to this, but he's not. He's not gentle, though he, he, he rich seems. So even though he seems to be wealthy or well settled, he's not. Visa may well be heir to old richessa, but that man, that may no man, as men may well see, bequitha his heir, his virtuous noblesse, that is appropriate unto no degree, but to the first father in majesty, that maketh him his heir, but calm him, quem him, or were he mitra kron or diadem. Um, vices may go back. Um, we may long for this. We can't have it unless it's appropriated, given to us by the first master in majesty. I think the allusion there is to Christ. So even if our original roots take us back to Adam, um, it's only by means of the virtues, the graces that we receive from Christ, that we can recover that original virtue we once had. Visa may well be heir to old richessa, but there may no man, as men may well see, bequeath his heir, his virtuous noblesse. It won't be passed down through a line. Kings may have sons, but the fact that they're kings doesn't mean their sons are gonna be good. Good parents sometimes have bad kids. That is appropriate unto no degree, but to the fairest father in majesty. I think that's an allusion to Christ. That maketh him his hair, but con him queme, or where he me mitra crun or diadema. That would have been something like that, Middle English. Okay. Okay, let's let's start. Um, I'd like to go back and review just very, very quickly um, the, I want to pick up with the um, suicide of thought and then quickly do um, um, ethics of Elfland. But before we do, I know this is out, out of, um, what's the phrase, out of, out of step, that's not out of, it's not the way I usually do things, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm not sure if you're all aware of the attack that was made on um, Salman Rushdie, who had written Satanic Verses and um, Midnight's Children. 
It's one of the, probably one of the great authors of our time. I've skimmed stuff, I've not read him, so I don't know him well, but I was really troubled to hear what happened. I just want to take a minute with that, because in some ways, it, it profoundly sheds a light on something we've been doing, even if it's not been apparent, okay? Um, Rushdie is a um, um, British. Like, like most British, he's very articulate. He writes really well. He's an outstanding writer. And he writes what some might call classical um, 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 magic stories. Um, there's a realistic element to them and a magical element to them. And it's interesting to think about what's happening. If you go back to 19th century British or American novels, we, when we pick up the novel, we'll, go, we'll, we'll pick up there. We'll pick up with Melville and uh, Hawthorne. We've not done that. I don't intend to do that. But if you go back to English literature, Trollope, Eliot, Dickens, Austen, you can go on and on and on. Um, um, you get a strong sense that those writers are all English writing about English things. The world is fairly settled. Um, the same thing would be true in America, except for one difference, and this is why I want to touch on this tonight. When you get to America, when you get to America, something's happening that's not been done before, that has any worth in literature, so far as we know. After we were here, a century after the our Revolutionary War, America's Americans began American artists began to realize that they were speaking in an English idiom. They were still speaking like Englishmen when we had broken. And they all went through a period of trying to recover our own voice because we were not the same. We broke from England. We were trying to do something England didn't do. If you read our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, you see nothing like our democracy had ever been done before. Not in Greece, not in Rome, not even in England. So we were trying to do something different, and all of the men un finally understood to be Americans, they had to speak a new language. They had to find out, they had to find their tongue. Walt Whitman did something outrageous. I mean, he offended most of the world because of what he did, but it was an original American tongue. Everybody saw that. That's why he was loved. Hawthorne did the same thing. If you're reading Melville, you'll hear an American voice, but you'll hit residues, you'll get hints of something very English still in Melville when we do it. But something's happened after, you know, the 19th century. And um, particularly in the modern world as the modern state emerges with Russia um, and the other nations. Um, with all the persecutions and the cleansing, um, you know, the ethnic cleansings that's been going on, that, that's given rise to all these vast migrations and refugees. Um, new orders of priests, I can't remember the, the order of priests, the, the, in St. Luke the priests there were dedicated to immigrants. Because it's worldwide. Um, immigrants were flooding into Europe, they were coming into America. The, our southern border has been a major problem for us. The great problem for America right now is we've always been open to immigrants, but it was a lawful process. Um, we didn't want immigrants coming in lawlessly, unlawfully. To let them in was in violation of our Constitution. And if this isn't clear, remember, the great theme of the Aeneid was fate's fugitive. 
Anise had to leave his home. He and his companions had to find a new home. They went to country after country after country, finally to settle Rome. Rome was the one place in which people could come from all countries. That was the nature of Rome. That's what made it different from every other nation in the world. America is the new Rome. Are we living it? I don't want to answer that question. But the reason for pointing this out is Rushdie hit on something. He's speaking as, an, as somebody come from another land experiencing this sense of dissociation, not at home, alienation, loneliness, um, um, coming into a culture whose values are different from his own. So he's standing in the same way Virgil did with Rome, Homer did in his time, Shakespeare in some ways, certainly Melville and Hawthorne because they were new Americans. We just left England. So one of the problems of the modern world are these mass migrations with people flooding everywhere, immigrants coming into countries. Calbrinians, I can't remember the priestly order that, that opened precisely to minister to immigrants because it's such a large problem. How is this relevant? If you remember when we read John Paul's Fide Eratio, he said Christ was the first one to cross these boundaries. He came for the chosen people. I read those passages where he is furious at that. He came for the house of Israel, says. He says to his apostles, go to the house of Israel, nobody else. And he goes there and he can't do any healing because they're turned from him. So he turns his ministry to the Gentiles, said, I'm going to you. The experience with the woman at the well, the Canaanite woman, and the Roman soldier, the, you know, who's the, which is the, hmm? Is Huh? Jairus? No, remember the Roman soldier came and said, heal my slave. Oh. And um, he said, you don't have to go there, just do it, because I know you can do it. Um, so Christ um, went beyond the, the Jewish borders to people everywhere. And it changed his ministry in the middle of his life, or in the middle of his ministry. John Paul, in that chapter, said, he's quoting St. Paul, once we were far off, now we're near. Once we were two, and now we're one. There's no more Greek, no more Gentile, no man, no woman. We're one in Christ. So the whole call was to open ourselves to others. That was in the American character. That's what we were supposed to do. The way we're doing it today is a mess. I mean, we've taken a calling that's a part of our national identity and treating it so badly. But that's who we are. And that's just another indication of how much calls Christ call is embedded in our Constitution. Is that clear? Rushdie um, is attacked years ago after he wrote Satanic Voice. What's that called? The patwa or the fatwa? When you put out a hit, the, the, one of the Ayatollahs put, it, put out a hit or fatwa on Rushdie to kill him because he had openly opposed the Islamic um, faith. So for a couple of years he's been under threat of death and you know that people, the Japanese man who translated his book was killed because he translated it. The English woman who did uh, the Harry Potter stuff who supported it is under threat. So there's this threat of violence 
against what is protected for us in our Constitution called freedom of speech. We abuse it badly in our country. We use our freedoms badly. But that's one of our rights and it, it has to be fought for. And it's one of the reasons people come here. This guy is being persecuted because he spoke freely in a literary work um, in a way that was critical of Islam. So it's a dangerous time what's going on and religious issues are not small. John Paul addressed it in Fide Ratio. He speaks specifically about crossing boundaries. We were all distant, separated. Now we are one. Our whole call is to bring Christ. And I'm assuming everybody will know that is not going to be easy today. Try to talk with somebody who's Islamic or of another faith or who comes from a different culture. We're facing obstacles today that are in some ways far worse than what we faced when we broke off from England. So it's a time of real crisis for us. Um, and it's certainly a, a crisis for us in our church because at the center of our church is this call um, to come together, to not be far off or near, those are Paul's terms, to be one. So I just thought, I, you know, we've been talking about that. I don't want it to be just ideas in our heads. There's a serious call running through the readings we've been doing, okay? I just don't want them to be ideas, particularly in view of what's going on. This is awful, what's happening. Okay, so, sorry, um, I meant to pray. If we can, sorry, I meant if, for 30 seconds here, if, if I can turn this into a prayer. Christ, we have committed ourselves as a country um, to living a cross, to putting ourselves away, to make an opening for other, particularly where it's dangerous, um, to protect our freedoms. Um, um, we abuse those freedoms terribly in our country, but we still have to protect them. It's one of the awful tensions of what we're trying to do as a people. I ask for a special protection for people who speak out and um, put themselves in danger at risk of their lives. Help us at this time of a terrible risk. We offer this included in the prayer we offered earlier. Amen. Okay, let's... Um, I'd like to go back just for a moment to pick up the end of Suicide of Thought. And I, I, I want to turn it over to you. Chesterton ends it, I thought, really effectively by, um, by mentioning Joan of Arc and Christ. Um, before we do, I, I just want to underscore, remember last week um, I put Suzanne on the spot by asking her to remember what she said in the car on her way home about materialism. Just for a minute, what's the problem once again? Because it's a major, it's a major problem in our time. What's the problem with materialism as a philosophy, a view of life? What's wrong? Can we just nail it on the head here? It's not my custom. That was the phrase I was looking for, it's not my custom. Um, What's wrong with materialism? What's the problem? It's very limited. 
how, Mary, spell it out. It only looks at physical objects, mm -hmm. which you can touch or see, or, yep. and it doesn't realize that there's something far greater yeah. than all of that. Remember Chesterton, over and over again, in a number of passages where he's taking on specific disorders of our age, he said several times, that's a philosophy that stops thought. Remember that the title of the chapter appropriately is Suicide of Thought. There are actually many of the dominant philosophies of thought of our, our, day, that, of our age that actually take away thought. Chesterton's book is a great book because if there's, if there's a man more thoughtful than Chesterton, I mean, maybe St. Thomas, if there's a man more, Chesterton, or more thoughtful than Ch Chesterton, I don't know him. I mean, we, we see him doing nothing but thinking through orthodoxy in amazing ways. There isn't anything he doesn't touch on. And repeatedly says, that's a philosophy that actually stops thought. It takes thought away. Here, to open this up, St. Thomas said, the root of freezing, so important, this is St. Thomas, this is the center of our church, and this is Chesterton. The root of freedom, this is Thomas, the root of freedom, I mean, sorry, yeah, the root of reason, re, freedom is reason. Take reason away, what options do we have in our choices? Our, our powers of reason and free will are inseparable. You can't dissociate them. I hope that's clear. Our powers of reason and our free will are absolutely linked. You can't take them apart. If you take one, the other one disappears. Take our free will away, it diminishes reason. If, it take, if we take our reason away, what options do we present to ourselves? Our reason will present us with options so we can do this or this or this or this and have a choice. Right? Take reason away, our will is destroyed. The root of freedom is reason. Chesterton says again and again. That's a philosophy that stops thought. It takes it away. Materialism is a horror, okay? Because it, it says nothing's real but matter. If nothing's real but matter, how do you explain human consciousness? The fluidity, the plastic nature of our mind, the spiritual, that our mind can transcend boundaries, time limits. If nothing exists except matter, how do you explain our mind? Materialism takes away our thought and it takes away our free will. I just want to underscore this. The fundamental principle at the heart of this whole book, orthodoxy, is free will. He loves it. It's going to be central to the chapter coming up. Okay? Chesterton is the great defender of free will. That's why he's on the way to the Catholic Church. He was Catholic before he became Catholic. He really was. Um, remember, he ends the suicide of thought with the example of um, Joan of Arc and Christ. And he gives the example of um, Anatole France. Imagine young kids in high school reading these works. They're going to read a work like this, the, the teacher's going to be entranced, the student's going to be entranced, and they won't even know that this great heroine is going to have her legs cut out from underneath her. Because um, um, the, the writer is going to present her as having problems at the top of 247 in mind. 
Um, it has the same strange method of reverent skeptic. It discredits supernatural stories that have some foundation. Be because the writer doesn't believe in miracles, when he looks at Joan, all that's presented in terms of miracles is going to be explained away. He's going to look at them as hallucinations, fancies, dreams, things like that. So he's half um, undermining her heroism because in his own thinking he makes no place for the supernatural. And he quotes another writer doing the same thing with Christ. On the very last page of Suicide of Thought, The same modern difficulty which darkened the subject matter of Anatole France also darkened that of Ernest Renan. Renan also divided his hero's pity from his hero's pugnacity. That's Christ. He couldn't reconcile them. Renan even represented the righteous anger at Jerusalem as a mere nervous breakdown after the idyllic expectations of Galilee. God, this is God who is man, so he has to be judged by human standards, yes, 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 because he's human, but he's also God. And if all you have is human standards, how are you going to look at those parts of him that are divine? So he looks at Christ when he first comes, ready to serve the house of Israel, tells his, sends his disciples out, don't go to anywhere else, go here, and then he changes and gets really angry. And he can't reconcile them. So the upshot of what he does is to treat Christ as merely human. So there's, I hope it's all, this is clear. What we so often find in reality, the way we read books, the way we read each other, depends on our assumptions. If we make an allowance for the miraculous, he won't always surprise us. If we don't, we're going to explain everything away according to our own assumptions. What we begin with, that's what we find. That is, we read into things our own ideas. That's what we start with, that's what we'll find. If we're a materialist, our vision will be reduced, shrunk into that. If we're healthy, we should make a place for materialism. It's a major part of our life. But we also make a place for other things. Okay? That was suicide of thought. Any remarks before we go? I want to go to Ethics of Elfland and see if I can handle this fairly quick. Go ahead, Mary. You said something about conscience. Sorry about what? You said about conscience. Con yeah. Consciousness. Sorry. Consciousness. Con okay. Sorry. Okay. Conscious. Sorry. Okay. What I meant to say is human consciousness. That there's a spiritual aspect. No, I'm sorry. I'm. You, um, thanks for catching me. If I said conscience, I meant consciousness. Did I slip up anywhere else? Probably more than you all are letting on. Um, any other comments or questions or? Okay, Ethics of Elfland. He starts this chapter by affirming two principles. 
One is democracy and the other is tradition. Now why would he do that? Why would he start that way? Page 250, it's the second page in in my book. He loved democracy for this reason. He says, this is just a few paragraphs in at the beginning. This is the first principle of democracy. Um, that the essential things in men are the things they hold in common, not the things they hold separately. It should matter less to us whether we're black or white, Italian, Greek, Turkish. What should matter is that we're all men. We have a common bond, whatever our differences are. The second principle is merely this, that the political instinct or desire is one of those things which they hold in common, right? All people have to be governed, so political systems is one of those things we all have in common. Falling in love is more poetical than dropping into poetry. The democratic contention is that government helping to rule the tribe is a thing like falling in love and not a thing like dropping into poetry. It's not something analogous to playing the church organ, painting on vellum, discovering the North Pole, looping the loop, being astronomical royal, and so on. For these things, we do not wish a man to do all unless he does them well. Um, it is, on the contrary, a thing analogous to writing one's own love letters. These things you want a man to do for himself. The fundamental principle of democracy, I mean, Reagan was insistent on it. So, um, a, he got it from Lincoln. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. If a government becomes so large that it starts making decisions for us, we're gone. Not only as human beings, but politically as a government. If we if we can't make decisions on our own and we don't have the support of the government, we're in trouble. So what's he protecting? <laughs> Man's free will. It is fundamental to everything he does. That's why he loves democracy. It's why he wants to fight for it, speak for it. The second thing he grew up fond of is what he calls tradition. Okay. Why is tradition important? Well, here's one of the reasons he would have been so insistent on it in his time. Because in Chesterton's time, just as all these rationalisms are coming in and people are starting to turn towards socialism and fascism and Nazism and all these state forms of government, people were also turning from traditions because they thought tradition meant um, your individuality is stifled. Your individuality is stifled. Tradition's bad because it means you have to do things the way they've already been done. Chesterton doesn't look at tradition that way. He says, at the bottom of 250, the same page, there's one thing that I've never from my youth been able to understand. I've never been able to understand where people got this idea that democracy was in some ways opposed to tradition. It's obvious that tradition is only democracy extended through time. That means it's free will and the capacity for man to do things on his own extended in time. It's like the impulse of democracy over time. It is trusting to a consensus of common human voices rather than some isolated or arbitrary record. The man who quotes some German historian against the tradition of the Catholic Church, for instance, is strictly appealing to aristocracy. Some men are better than others. Democracy means um, we give a place to people even if we disagree with them or they're wrong. 
we still make a place for that. Um, otherwise, we're in an aristocracy. We have to be better than other people because we're better educated. Um, those who urge against tradition that men in the past were ignorant may go and urge the Carlton Club along with the statement that voters in the slums are ignorant. That's an argument for not letting poor people vote because they're not as educated, you know, they're less trustworthy, <laughs> as if the rich are. Go down a few lines. Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to, sit, to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. It's wonderful. He's holding on to two important things that are necessary to protect our own free will. Democracy, tradition. And if you look at the tradition, I mean, one of the things we've been doing as a group is trying to put this tradition together. We've been dealing with war. What haven't we looked at in the book? The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine, Divine Comedy. We went through hell. We saw heaven. There's nothing we haven't looked at in this class. And I would argue it, make, it makes us richer because we carry more of our tradition in us. It gives us a fullness that we don't have without it. Okay. So he says one of the things that um, made him love fairyland is that fairyland actually protected those things in a way the sciences do not. Because typically the sciences rest on determinisms, what can't be other than they are, right? Otherwise, how do you predict something? Sciences have to do with what's, what's repeatable, what's predictable, what's fixed, what's determined. And what he loved about fairy tales is that there were not these fixed determinisms. In fairy tale, there were these laws um, that if you broke had consequences. If you're a materialist, <laughs> stop and think about it. We went through this. If you're a materialist, things can't be other than they are. If something happened, it's because it's determined. It undermines free will. It undermines thinking. He says, it must be... this." through 253, it must be stated this way, there are certain sequences or developments which are in the true sense of the word reasonable. They are in the true sense of the word necessary. Such are mathematical and merely logical sequences. For instance, if the ugly sisters are older than Cinderella, it means it's necessary Cinderella is ugly or younger than the ugly sisters. There's no getting out of it. By the way, do you, does, does that remind you of anything? We went over this in an earlier work. Logic. Hmm? Logic, the syllogisms. Shell. You remember Boethius when we looked at free will and predestination at the very end? It was the ending argument of Boethius and free will. If, if, if God for this was this was the, the question. If God foresees everything, means everything's determined. There is no free will. It's going to happen. What was Lady Philosophy's response to that? I've got to start getting quizzes. I've got to make this serious. 
What was Lady Flossie? Are you all following? If God foresees if God foresees everything, and in some ways He has to, um, it means it's, things are determined. We have no free will. They're going to be that way anyway because He saw them. Well, God sees beyond that. He didn't make it happen. He just because He's all over time, He knows what the end time yeah. will be. Just because He sees it doesn't mean He necessitates it, right? Um, he gave the example, if I remember, it's been a while since we did Boethys, he said, if you, if you see that somebody's sitting in that, if you see that somebody's sitting in that chair, does it mean he's sitting there because it's necessitated by your seeing it? No, he happens to be there and it's necessary that he is seeing it. So you see that. But your seeing it doesn't cause him to sit there. So in Chesterton's example, if the apple hits the nose, it's necessary that that nose was hit. <laughs> Are we all following? I mean, it sounds sort of silly, but it's true. And if you live in a, in a materialist world where everything is determined, then everything's going to happen that way anyway. So one of the things he loved about fairy tales is that there, there were rules and laws and a freedom. So when somebody did something, if they opened a box, demons might have come out, or dragons might have come out, or if you pulled an apple off a tree you shouldn't have, um, remember we talked about that? It's, it so reminds me of the garden. There was all this great goodness, but one rule. Do not do that. Do not do that. And we did it. So the, the reason he liked fairy tales is because in some ways they were more reflective of reality as it is. People had choices, they made wrong choices, they faced consequences. Um, so they left him with a sense of wonder. And he says, um, we're born into the world before we have a right to criticize it. The first response to anything in life should be gratitude and wonder. The world is here, we're made, we came into it, we didn't create ourselves, we have no right to criticize it without feeling wonder and gratitude. Chesterton is very critical. Yeah? He has a very like, wonderful critical mind. But there's nothing he does that isn't done with a spirit of gratitude and wonder. He's such, he's such a good mind, such a good heart. So that's the basic um, argument, the concern. He says in 254, We've always in our fairy tales kept the sharp distinction between the science of mental relationship. In our minds, right, we know that there are certain things are true. If this is so, this follows. Um, but we don't always know the causes, the why. We have always in our fairy tales kept the sharp distinction between the science of mental relations in which there really are laws, two and two will always be four and the science of physical facts in which there are no laws but only weird repetition. Um, he means by that this. St. Thomas would have concurred. Aristotle would have said the same thing. We know that an apple falls. We know that there's a law of gravity, right? Do we, do we understand that the why of that law? No, we do not. We understand that something is so. Its ultimate causes escape us. If we begin a acting like we know the causes of everything, then we're back in a deterministic world. 
There's a lot we can understand. Science can show us what can be repeated. Do we know the why of those things? We don't. Chester says it's something of a mystery. He's trying to hold on to a sense of wonder because he said what's, what he discovered was it was magic. You know, he, he, he looked at the green and the grass and instead of saying like the scientists would say, it can't be any other color, he says it could have been purple. Who are we to say? The apples on the tree could have been, sorry? What do you, I mean, you know, they could have been short um, polka dot. You know, we don't know the laws. For him, the fact that things are repeated is a cause of wonder. There it is again. He, he likens himself to the child who says, swing me again, swing me again. There it is again. The fact that the sun keeps coming up every day is a cause of wonder. Gratitude, there it is again. So in his mind, the universe is not dead, it's full of life. It just keeps reasserting itself. If we lose a sense of wonder, we're half dead. So fairy tales kept that alive for him when the rest of the world was talking scientific fatalism. Everything was faded. Everything was determined. There was a necessity to everything. It couldn't be other. Okay? And this was the center. I mean, this to me is one of the most beautiful passages, I think, of the whole chapter. This is 258 in, our, in my book. Um, anyone can see it who will simply read Grimm's fairy tales. Um, or the fine collection of Andrew Lang. For the pleasure of pedantry, I will call it the doctrine of conditional joy. Touchstone talked, this is a, a character in a Shakespeare play. According to elfin ethics, all virtue um, rests in an if. The note of fairy utterance always is, you may live in a place of gold, palace of gold and sapphire, if you do not say the word cow. Because you know sometimes in a, in a fairy tale, and the interesting, by the way, this, this is the, this is, this is an argument for, this is, I mean, lots of people probably disagree with me on this. I wouldn't call the beginning of the Iliad a fairy tale. Men are killing each other, right? And it, it's realistic. Remember, we've gone through, Homer describes a spear going through a guy's eyeball and coming out the back. I mean, there's nobody more graphic about violence than Homer. The Iliad is amazing that way. The interesting thing about the Iliad is all these men keep making these decisions in the beginning. Every one of them has consequences they never could have seen. All of them. How many times do we make a decision thinking we're absolutely right? Because we, we have to act on convictions. It's not like, you know, we have to think, we have to make choices. And sometimes we make, we make choices doing the best we can and realize later it wasn't quite as good as I thought or it wasn't as noble or virtuous as I thought. You must live in a palace, you may live in a palace of gold and sapphire if you do not say the word cow, or you may live happily with the king's daughter if you do not show her an onion. God. The vision always rests, uh, hangs upon a veto. All the dizzy and colossal things concealed depend upon one small thing withheld. The doctrine of conditional joy. We will have joy so long as we do not do 
such and such, whatever it is. The next page he says, this principal, this princess lives in a glass castle, that princess on a glass hill. This one, that is, women tend to love very delicate things. They're surrounded by glass. What's the problem with glass? It's very brittle. And he says, you may live in a house of glass so long as you don't throw stones. And this fairy tale sentiment also sank into me and became my sentiment towards the whole world. I felt and feel that life itself is as bright as a diamond, but as brittle as the window pane. Remember, however, that to be breakable is not the same as to be perishable. Strike at a glass and it will not endure an instant. Simply do not strike at it and it will endure a thousand years. Such it seemed was the joy of man, either in Elfland or on earth. The happiness depended on not doing something. That's the pass or the paragraph that begins remember, however. So he had no sympathy with, you know, all the tendency of the modern mind to look at, this is from uh, Air, um, Newton, Isaac Newton, who looked at the universe as a clock. That's where our mechanistic theories of psychology, the mechanistic, the physics, of the mechanism of the world, the, the world is a clock, it's mechanical, um, that everything's just repeating itself and it's dead. Um, Chesterton saw that there was a magic to things. The grass could have been purple. If it was magic, if there was something magical to the world, that it was amazing what it did, it meant there was a magician. And he realized there had to be a creator. Um, and that man had this amazing, these amazing capabilities. He could do things that nobody else did because he had these powers of reason and free will. Let me stop. I think that's really the heart of ethics of health. health the ethics, I don't want to reduce to a moral code, ethics, is that in, um, in our world we believe that lots of things are determined by matter. It's just a fact. Um, but we also know that there's more going on in the world. And I tried to suggest this. I remember um, um, Anne said something was so much to the point. And I'd like to just end my thoughts on um, ethics, this ethics chapter with this. To the empiricist, the pure empiricist, the pure empiricist will find no meaning in sequence um, that doesn't derive from his senses. This is what my eyes and ears, this, 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 this. The value of that is he, he may come up with a theory and prove it by an experiment to say, this is true, this is true, and I've proved it by an experiment, it's good. We can know that. On that basis, we have science. But the pure, the pure empiricist will only admit what's delivered to his senses. He does not allow for the causality of the spirit. That the spirit, because he's the one who created it, Christ is the word, God created this world. The natural laws are a reflection of him. This may be going too fast. God is present in the world. He made it. It's like Shakespeare's present in his book. It's him, not Jane Austen. Or There's a lot of order designed to the world, a lot of goodness. All of it reflects an intelligence. So it shows a creator. Okay? So 
we can follow a sequence of events and say to our kids, four years old, you are not running out in the street. That's, that's a rule. Run out in the street, you're going to spanking, or you're going to you know, go to bed without dinner, something. Because you know what might happen from that sequence, right? So it, the empiricist will know what's deliverable to his senses because all of us do. This happens, this happens, this happens. You may even arrive at a conclusion. But if he's a pure empiricist and a materialist, he will not allow for the causalities of the spirit. That the spirit can work with that same sequence because he himself made it. He's present in its laws, the order of the universe. They reflect him. So he can bring something out of it in a way that will be a miracle, but still in accord with natural law. So the scientists will want to explain it away. He'll say, it's just this. The Catholic Church will say, no, there are causalities to matter. We can explain them. Yeah. But there's also other things here. That's why the Catholic Church takes such pains to explore um, appearances, the, what do you call it when? Apparitions. Apparitions, yeah. Any religious experience, because you know that people can go nuts in their advantage. They can make all sorts of claims that aren't valid. The church does everything it can to show the validity of something. They have to look into it pretty seriously. So the materials will only allow, will only allow for ca material causes. The, the church will allow, somebody who knows that there's more, will allow that the spirit can work with those causes to bring things out of them beyond the knowing of man. We call those miracles. Every work, that's why last week we ended, I think, I, every work we've read, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, all of them, every single one of them has had events take place that were miraculous. But they were so much a part of ordinary life, we could miss them. What's the, the title of this course? I don't like that course. Of the work we're doing together? <laughs> Trying to find Christ where ordinarily he... It's hard to find him, whatever the title of our... Yeah? Let me stop. That's Ethics of Elfland. So I want to get on to the flag of the world here. Any, any questions or comments? Lori, yes, sir. you've got something. No, 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 no. I, I just enjoyed that. Okay. I know something's on that mind of yours. Go on, Kay. Nobody? I don't believe this. Is everybody okay? One of the reasons he loves fairy tales, I think I, I was, gave. what's the, boy, I'm really losing it. I was, was tooting my own horn. That's not the fairy, boy, I really am losing it. I was giving a plug. I was giving literature a plug because they were saying Chesterton loves fairy tales because they're, because they're, because they're stories. <laughs> they're what we're spending our time on here because all really good stories should, should take us to our own world. It's the world we're 
in you know the concrete world of our daily experiences but really good storytellers make us aware that something more is going on do we see it do we see it if we do we'll come out of it with a sense of renewed wonder you know um, we can recover something childlike in us that we know that particularly with painful things I, I can't I can't remember a work we've read that didn't deal with real suffering pretty serious suffering the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Divine Comedy, the Shakespeare plays and yet there was this something extraordinary going on that helped us see we can learn from our experiences, become better people um, if I get through if I get through um, the flag of the world and I'm watching the clock, it'll be a record. <laughs> you won't be able to laugh and make fun of me anymore, <laughs> Bob. <laughs> I can hear Bob saying, yeah, we've heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> and he's only expressing what I know all of you were. God. No questions on ethics? Okay. This is another wonderful chapter. Um, but the Chesterton just amazes me. I'm glad to have this time with you. If you think about the, just the titles of the chapters, they are perfect. I mean, in themselves, they show what a brilliant mind, I mean, they're so simple, flag of the world, ethics of elf, they're so ordinary, and yet they say so much, you know, ethics of elf, Elfland and the flag of the world. He begins chapter 5, the flag of the world, recalling that when he grew up, most of the, most of the people around him kept talking about these two people who, who were the two types that divided the world down. The world can be divided down into optimists and, and uh, pessimists. He said in the beginning, two curious men who kept walking about, the only thing which might be considered evident was that they could not mean what they said, for the ordinary verbal explanation was the optimist thought this world as good as it could be, while the pessimist thought it as bad as it could be. Both these statements being obviously raving nonsense, one had to cast about for other... I hope that's clear. Do you, is it clear that they're black and white? And the fact that they're black and white means they can't make sense. The world can't be as bad as it is and as good as it is at the same... They make no sense. There has to be some good in the world and there has to be some bad. If we look at the world in black-white terms, we're already contributing to a problem. Both these statements are raving nonsense. An optimist could not mean a man who thought everything right and nothing wrong, for that's meaningless. It's like calling everything right and nothing left. <laughs> Upon the whole, I came to the conclusion that the optimist thought everything good except the pessimist, and that the pessimist thought everything bad except himself. Um, the top of 270, he, this, 
to me is the germ of the whole chapter. He says, neither of those positions is really sensible. A man belongs to this world before he begins to ask if it's nice to belong to it. He has fought for the, that is, the fact that we're born into the world means that's our, we're not born into another world. Right? We can't, we can't take our birth away and come back into a world of our own creating. We're born into the world, which means we have a loyalty to it before we can ever criticize it for what's wrong with it. Change it the way we want, to have it be the way we want things. There's something good about it, something bad. But our first loyalty should be to the world. So it's the flag of the fortress. It's, that's why he calls it the flag of the world, right? Like the flag of a fortress. We're here to defend this world before we're called to, to do other things with it. Um, he has fought for the flag and often won heroic victories for the flag long before he ever enlisted. To put shortly what seems the essential matter, he has a loyalty long before he has an admiration. So he said it was his sense of this in the next few lines. In the last chapter it's been said that the primary feeling that this world is strange and yet attractive is best expressed in fairy tales. Go down a few lines. The world is not a lodging house at Brighton, which we are to leave because it's miserable. It is the fortress of our family with a flag flying on the turret. And the more miserable it is, the less we should leave it. The point is not that this world is too sad to love or too glad not to love. The point is that when you do love a thing, its gladness is all the reason for loving it and its sadness a reason for loving it more. I don't know of a better statement describing Christ in my life. He didn't come into this world because everything was nice. But he did come in to change it. And he did it because he loved it enough to die for it. That's the finest description of Christ I've ever heard. Let me read it again. The point is not that this world is too sad to love or too glad not to love. The point is that when you do love a thing, it's gladness is a reason for loving it. By the way, I, I'm trusting you on... Christ had a special fondness for John. And if you don't know it, when we do, after we have our dinner night, we're going to do Matthew and John. And you'll see, um, John, is the, John is the one disciple who most carried the Jewish Old Testament in him. He, that's in him. When, when the disciples are described running to the tomb, remember? I, th I think... John gets there first. Peter looks in. Because John has this deep love that carries the Old Testament in him. So, and there's this special love that Christ, we know that. I'm not, I hope I'm not reading any of this, but we know he has this special love for John. He loved good things. How could he not? He created them. He loved good things. The point is not that this world is too sad to love or too glad not to love. The point is that when you do love a thing, its gladness is a reason for loving and its sadness a reason for loving it more. All optimist thoughts about England and all pessimistic thoughts about her are alike reasons for the English patriot. Same thing with any of us in our marriage or our families. Now this is where it gets nervy. So hold on. He says, 
in the next paragraph, let's suppose we're confronted with a desperate thing, say Pimlico. Pimlico is actually a city. It's where all the wealthy people who had a sense of English history went. So it was a pristine, sort of idyllic, um, historic place. It's not enough for a man to disapprove of Pimlico. In that case, he'll merely cut his throat or move to Chelsea. If he doesn't like what's happening at Pimlico, he'll move. Nor certainly is it enough for a man to approve of Pimlico, for then it will remain Pimlico, which would be awful. Let me take a minute here. I want to go into these. Well, here, let me go to 271. He says the problem is with... I'm going to come back and ask you the question. What's the problem with the pessimist and, and the optimist? But before we go there, he said in the next page, so many modern men are products of the social contract theorists. This is Hobbes, Rousseau, and Locke. And all of them in different ways said the principal motivating impulses of man are fear and pity. Sorry, pride. I'm sorry. Pride and fear. Those are the principal motivating things. Pride and fear. In a state of nature, with those being our principal motivating qualities, we're ready to kill each other. So left to a state of nature, the natural state that we're in, they all claimed we would kill each other. In order to avoid that, they formed a social contract. That's the basis of the modern world. I won't do this to you if you don't do this to me. It's a contract. Is everybody clear? The principal motivating factors in our lives are pride and fear. On that basis, we go to war with each other. We'll kill each other. We'll fight each other. Or run away from each other. Chesterton says that's a peculiar modern thing if you look back to the past, there was no such thing as that, he says. Um, Moreover, they did not begin by one man saying to another, I will not hit you if you do not hit me. There is no trace of such a tra transaction. That's purely modern. There is a trace of both men having said, we must not hit each other in the holy place. They gained their morality by guarding their religion. They did not cultivate courage. They fought for the shrine and found they had become courageous. Let me go back because that's so simple. It can, that is, there was something holy that existed in the beginning. It's like what he said. We're all born into the world before we can criticize it. We have a loyalty. The first impulse in us should be gratitude and gladness, wonder. That should be our first, the first movement, whatever we do with it. We can go to war. Joan of Arc went to war. He admires her. He said, men did not, it's like um, somebody saying, I want to I, um, I show how cultivated I am. So I'm going to learn the piano. C.S. Lewis gets all over this. What happens when you want to show how cultivated you are? So you play the piano. Hmm? Sorry? Yeah. The word he uses is um, prig. It should become a prig. Men and women both. You become supercilious. You think you're better than other people. He says there's no evidence of that. None. That's a purely modern thing. Well, I mean, it, people in the old world had it. There was something holy to the world. And because it was there, you fought for it. 
And because you fought for it, you found yourself becoming courageous. It's not the other way around. Try to cultivate courage, like trying to cultivate piano or be smart. I mean, Bob hit it on the head. For all of us, all of us, all of us, we become too proud. They fought for the shrine and found they'd become courageous. They did not cultivate cleanliness. They purified themselves for the altar and found they were clean. You love something enough, you give your life for it. And you find that when you do this, you become those things, those virtues. They become a part of who you are. Okay, I want to stop for a second because I, I think this is an amazing chapter and it applies, in my mind, to our modern world. What's wrong with pessimism and optimism? What does he say? The optimist says everything's good. The pessimist says everything's bad. Just in purely practical, practical terms in living out our lives, Mary's turn, I can't remember how she put it, but the materialist um, limits the world too much. It shrinks it. What's wrong with both of those philosophies, to be an optimist or a pessimist? It's the lens that they're looking at. It's like having a, a green lens on, and maybe you see everything as green. What's wrong with that? that you don't it's see not the... real? Hmm? It's not real? Explain that. Um, it's not truthful? Explain um, that. Very it's very Mary. Limited. <laughs> I don't know, it's very limited in what you see. I was thinking that both extremes call attention to oneself. Can you flesh that out? Go ahead. Well, pessimism is like, oh, golly, look at me, the world sucks. You know? And then optimism is like, life is great, look at what I love. I love this, I love that, I love that. You know, so it's, they're, they're both calling attention, they're both like a sense of pride, even though they're extreme. Yeah. Because it's, it's called, you're not thinking of God, you're thinking of yourself. Okay, what's the practical effect of that, just as you described it, Lori? The practical effect? Yeah, how would it work out with other people? It's annoying to everyone. <laughs> 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 I don't know, I don't know what kind of stuff I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you annoy people. <laughs> you know, and you affect them in a really bad way. Because, because they're not going to want to be closer to God either. Here, let me put it differently. Here, so to the pessimist, everything is all right. So you're talking about outside the world. Out, sorry, outside the pessimist, or the optimist. Outside the optimist, everything's okay. Outside the pessimist, everything is black. What's wrong with that response in practical terms to looking at what's outside of you in, in, the, in those ways? Then you're never gonna change anything because if you think everything's great, if you're an optimist, there's nothing to change. Right, and if you're a pessimist, what will you do? You change yourself. And look at it. destroy it. If the world's really bad, do away with it. If the world's really good, leave it alone. Neither one of them is an accurate response to the world because the, ro the world is a mixture of both of those things. Right? It's not all one or the other. Yeah. No? Sorry? Sorry? Most people don't live one or the other. They sometimes yeah, my own experience has been lots of people are very optimistic and lots of people are very pessimistic. That's the way they look at the world. And that's the lens through which they see everything. I mean, really. Um, look at the politicians. I don't want to keep going, but look at what politicians do today. I, I mean, I don't know of a brood of people that tends to be more black-white minded 
you know, um, sta really good statesmen. I mean, you know, Pericles or Churchill or Lincoln did the great things they did be because they didn't see the world that way. It forced them to take risks to deal with things that they, and when other people would have put things in one way or the other, you know. Um, here, these are just, this, I'm going to read Chesterton just fleshing out what you guys have said. Um, at the top of 272, what's the matter with a pessimist? I think it can be stated by saying he's the cos cosmic anti-patriot. Remember, his first principle is, we're born in the world, um, we owe the world a debt, before we owe a loyalty to the world before we can do anything with it. It's a free gift to us. The first response should be wonder and gratitude. So we should be defending the flag. That's his metaphor. What's the matter with the anti-patriot? I think it can, so he's the, he's the, he's not, the pessimist is not defending a flag, right? He's too pessimistic. I think it can be stated without undue bitterness by saying that he is the candid friend. What's the matter with a candid friend? There we strike the rock of real life and immutable human nature. I venture to say that what's bad in the candid friend is simply that he's not candid. He's keeping something back, his own gloomy pleasure in saying unpleasant things. He has a secret desire to hurt. Um, underneath whatever he says, there is this dark view of the world and it will come out somewhere. Um, go down a few lines. But there is an anti-patriot who honestly angers honest men, and the explanation of him is, I think, what I've suggested. He is the uncandid, candid friend. He always prides himself on saying the truth. His real motive is to hurt somebody. So, and remember, I think I've said this before. I mean, Christ told it. Martyrs tell the truth. Christ told the truth. We got him killed. But I think you can say that what they did, they did in love. Their aim, their intent was not to hurt somebody. Their intent was to make this truth, the beauty, the goodness of the world real when the cost of doing that put their lives at risk. Um, but there's an anti-patriot who honestly angers honest men and the explanation is this. He is the uncandid, candid friend. The man who says, I'm sorry to say we are ruined He's not sorry at all, because that gives him an excuse to leave. All right? I mean, it's exactly what Laurie was saying, you know, that, oh, things are this bad, you know, um, gives him an out. The bottom of 272, the evil of the pessimist then is not that he cherishes, chastises gods and men, but that he does not love what he's chastising. He has this primary and supernatural loyalty to things. What is the evil of the man commonly called the opposite? So, the evil, the, wrong, the, the shortcomings of the pessimist is um, that he really just wants to hurt in dealing with the bad things of the world because he doesn't love them enough. He does not love what he chastises. He has not that primary supernatural loyalty. Remember, the first loyalty is there is this inherent... By the way, God, sorry. What does the Protestant worldview do to that? 
Because the Protestant worldview begins that, with the view that man is corrupt. He is, in essence, depraved. What will that do to the way one man looks at another? I mean, Christ, grace will get you out of it, but the natural impulse is we're depraved. We're all bad. Chesterton is saying, no, there is this remarkable goodness. Our, we should have this primary loyalty to things. There is the goodness to the world. Do we hold on to it? Even what Joan of Arc went to, she went to war. When we go, when we chastise, do we do it because we love? When we're going to war with something, are we doing it because our love for something is helping us? What's the evil of the man commonly called the optimist? This is 273 in my book. Obviously, it's felt that the optimist wishing to defend the honor of this world would defend the indefensible. He is the jingo of the universe. He will say, my cosmos right or wrong. He will be less inclined to the reform of things, more inclined to a sort of front bench official answer. That is, he'll just go through the motions with everything. It's what we said earlier. The pessimist will hurt the optimist will leave everything the way it is. But if there are things there that need to be changed, neither one of those attitudes is going to help. He would be less inclined to the reform of things, more inclined to a sort of front bench official. We say that there must be a primal loyalty to life. The only question is, shall it be a natural or a supernatural loyalty? If you're a materialist, there's no reason to do anything. Things are going to go on anyway. It's only when you have an unreasonable attachment to the world that you can change it. Now, I know that sounds probably provocative, but remember, faith is only faith when we have no reason for holding it. Hope is only hope when we have no hope anymore. There's no reason for hope anymore. Love is only love when we no longer have a reason for loving something. Right? Then, then what's asked for are supernatural virtues. The point is not this world is too sad to love or too glad not to love. The point is that when you do love a thing, its gladness is a reason for loving it and its sadness a reason for loving it more. Can we be glad when the, the loves we have involve a cross and we have to keep loving more? Go down a few lines. Rational optimism leads to stagnation. It is irrational optimism that leads to reform. Why were all the martyrs killed? All the apostles killed? Why are martyrs killed? They're not just going along with what everybody wants them to do. What they're doing offends. As a matter of fact, usually what they're doing condemns what everybody else is doing. People don't like that. That's why Socrates was killed. That's why the apostles were killed. The man who is most likely to ruin the place he loves is exactly the man who loves it with a reason. Take that reason away, he has no more reason for staying. And the man who will improve the place is the man who loves it without a reason. If a man loves some feature of Pimlico, which seems unlikely, he may find himself defending that feature against Pimlico himself. But if he simply loves Pimlico itself, he may lay it waste and turn it into the New Jerusalem. I do not deny that reform may be excessive. I'm only saying that it's the mystic patriot who reforms. If your wife has a drinking problem, 
That's the reason. Or here, let me even. Let's say you love your wife when she was young and beautiful. That was the reason you love her. When she gets older and she's not beautiful, if that's the reason you love her, what's going to happen? Sorry, was that not? If you loved her because she was young and beautiful and she reaches a point where she's no longer young and she's no longer beautiful, what happens? Wow, sorry? You don't love her. You leave her. Yeah? Chester's saying that, no? Yes, what's, if that, what do you, wait, do you follow, because he's saying at that point you should love her more. Would you disagree with that? Yes. No, no, I don't disagree. If I loved you right now because you're as beautiful as you are, and I think you were really, I mean, I just think you, but in, and I'm not going to be around then, but let's say we were married, and 20 years, you just were not as good looking. Would that be a reason for me to leave you? Wait, by the way, a lot of men do that. I mean, I, there are stories, I mean, you hear this lament constantly as women get older that these men leave them for a younger, goes on in ho Hollywood is the place where women's beauty is put above everything else. If, if your wife has an alcoholic problem, is that a reason for leaving her? Not for Chester. It means you may have to do something, you may have to get her into a, a program, but I hope everybody's seen, but that's the point at which you have to do something. You, you just can't, because to go forward that way is just to enable her and leave her where she is. What good is that if that's the woman you love? Is everybody seen? Pessimism and optimism are, are inadequate responses to the world, particularly if you, if you say the first response was, um, we didn't create ourselves. We, were, we came into the world and the world was a gift to us. We owe it a loyalty, our gratitude and gladness before we can ever make a claim on it to do whatever we want to do with it. Is that, does everybody follow? It makes him go on to talk about the difference between the suicide and the martyr, yeah? What's the difference between the two? Because in one sense they illustrate his principle. What's the difference between a suicide and a martyr? Cheryl, go ahead. Yeah. Slow down and speak up the last part. Can you say the last part? World War One and World War Two. As a worldwide problem. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. 
Well, I don't, I mean, it, in, yeah, in one sense, I, I can say that what Chesterton is doing is expressing things. Remember, remember, I really, I'm saying this sort of, I'm trying to be very candid here. The basis of his argument is the Apostles' Creed, which was written 2,000 years ago. So in one sense, he's not doing anything differently than the Apostles did when they were martyred 2,000 years ago. And I, 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 don't, I don't want to dismiss, wait, I, I want to comment. Give me 30 seconds here before I turn it back, or 60 seconds. Um, the world has always been an evil place. That's nothing new. Um, so countries all over the world, Greece, Rome, had to fight. Jerusalem was in wars. I mean, you know, in that sense, good and evil have always been an issue in our world. Um, this is nothing new. And I think the, the good sense of Chesterton is the good sense that we had, you know, after Christ, because it's the apostles who wrote this. It was the Catholic Church who put this down. So in one sense, this is a statement of the Catholic Church 2,000 years ago. There was never a time when the Catholic Church was not embattled in some way. Um, but I do want to, I mean, in support of what you're saying, it's really interesting, just, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to be really, I'm going to, I'm going to set a record tonight. I've got to get through this chapter. Just, just to hold my own with Bob. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting to, just to, to limit it to, the, you know, your perspective. Because the First World War and the Second World War and the third, the minor third or wars that make up, you know, the third and whatever's coming, all came into existence with the emergence of the modern national state you know, the breakup of the Holy Roman Empire in a feudal medieval world. I mean, you've got a very different world where the state is assuming powers it never had before. Nazi Germany, um, or, you know, Hitler and Japan. And so the evil, and, and by the way, this is the beginning of the secular, this is the beginning of the, of the world that attempted to live without God, that was entirely atheistic, entirely. So it just so happened that you're hitting on a period in which the modern secular state emerges and we've got the messes that you're describing. I would say that the messes that we're dealing with are no different than the messes we ever have. They may be on a larger scale for the reason that we've been talking about. But Chester, Ch I'm going to make this claim. I, I don't know if I made it before, but it certainly needs to be made. Chesterton and Lewis are prophets. They're writing... 1920, 1930s, they're writing, that's a hundred years ago. That's a hundred years ago. Everything that they're describing has come to pass. So they're showing a good sense in the face of things before they got as bad as they are today. But the, but the problem is still going to be real. Um, Rome conquered the world. It was massive. So whatever went on in the way of conflicts involved a whole world. What we're dealing with is nothing new. It was there with Rome. It's more real today because we have this global sense with, you know, telecommunication and TV, and so we, we're more immediately connected with other people, but the disorders are the same. They're on a world scale, but they're the same. Um, so we're going to be dealing with a catastrophe that's probably going to be much larger. We know that with our atomic bomb capacity. But the issues are the same. You, you and I, Mary, all of us, 
are going to be facing decisions that we have to make. And let me try to let me try to put this as well as I can. What are the things that we know? I mean, certainly, we, I hope we've all been strengthened by reading C.S. Lewis and Chesterton. One of the things that we should know in our faith, I'm saying this really, it's going to sound too cavalier, but I mean it. What's the one thing we know, even if there's a nuclear war? What's the one thing we know that cannot be doubted for anybody holding a, the faith that we have? Sorry? Well, that's the dark way of putting it. <laughs> Wait, sorry. So, that's the pessimistic way of putting it. What? We're seeking eternity, and that's what we can expect. Can God be defeated? Absolutely not. No matter what happens, if the world gets blown up, no matter how bad it gets, good and evil. I mean, we, this has been our subject from the beginning. Can he be defeated? Evil, evil is a privation. No. So we, we ought to be able to go into any, however dark it gets. Love is not love until it no longer has a reason for loving. Faith isn't faith until you no longer have a reason for having faith. Hope is not hope until you no longer have a reason for hoping. No matter how bad it gets, we may die in a battle. Look at pre-Dunkirk in the Second World War when uh, Churchill was facing, I mean, we were on the verge of being destroyed, the Western powers. We were close to being destroyed. How many men lost hope? People kept hoping. We fought that through and we defeated evil, we defeated evil things. One of the things we do know, no matter what suffering we go through, <laughs> and, and I want to, I'm so glad. Yes, that's where I was going. Will it ever get, will it ever get, I mean, it may get as bad as Christ on the cross. You know, we don't know for any of us, but that's our faith. We're supposed to call on all of our powers of reason to deal with these things. But our powers beyond those, our faith is, we go into this, we may have to give up our lives, we may have to suffer. <laughs> but, but, huh? Right, right, right. Here, let me stop. Let me stop. Because we're almost out. And I've I've got to do this tonight. <laughs> I've got to be good for a change. <laughs> Sorry for getting worked up on this. Um, he takes up the martyr and the suicide and he talks about the inner light and the love of the love of natural things. They're just two different examples. Let me just go back to the suicide and the martyr. What's the difference between the suicide and the martyr? The suicide loses all hope. Yeah, yeah. What else? There's more to be said too that he just says beautifully. He, he said that a martyr gives his life up, I guess, for something better. For everybody. But but the suicide throws away life. Everything. And that way, he kills all men. Everything. Yes. It's just beautifully said, right? When somebody takes his life, he does away with the whole world. He's not just destroying. And wait, and I don't want to think about the um, increase in suicide. Look at the rate of suicides among veterans coming back from war. Um, it's it's a real symptom of it's a manifestation of something not good in our time. Yeah, but he's saying, and I think there's a truth to it. When you're despair, what does despair mean? Despair against hope. That's the one, I mean, as I, 
some, I'm glad for anybody to disagree with it. There's that passage that troubles me often when it talks about the one unforgivable sin. Christ says it's against the spirit. I'm not, I don't know how theologically sound I am in this, but I think he's saying despair because it takes God away. To despair, despair means dis. Parity is the French for hope. It takes away hope. If you have no hope for anything anymore, why live? You take God out of the picture again, any faith that something better may come if you stick it out. So the suicide kills everybody. He takes everything away by taking his life. The martyr gives up his life in order to give some good to every whatever it is. So he's talking about the very basic things, the way we conduct our lives in very practical ways. You, you were talking about the suicide rate with veterans, but you know, even with young, young teenagers, teenagers. Yep, yeah, young people. Yep, no, I, yeah. He says towards the end, and then followed an experience impossible to describe. It was as if I had been blundering about since my birth with two huge, unimaginable sheens of different shapes and without apparent connection. The world and the Christian tradition, they were at odds. I found this hole in the world, the fact that one must somehow find a way of loving the world without trusting it. We are, we are to be in this world. What did Christ say? Be on guard. Pray. You know, be as wise as the serpent and be on guard. The world's got a lot of evil in it. The, 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 one of the problems with the optimist is he's too cavalier. He just, you know, like there's nothing to worry about. A way of loving the world without trusting it. Somehow one must love the world without being worldly. I found this projecting feature of Christian theology like a sort of hard spike. And suddenly learning about Christianity and that spike filled a hole. Um, at the very towards the end, he says, the important matter was this, and it's entirely reversed the reason for up Because Chester grew up, I mean, you can picture him being optimistic. He's that kind of man. Yeah? And uh, the entirely reverse, the reason for optimism. In the instant the reversal was made, it fell like an abrupt ease when a bone is put back in the socket. I'd often called myself an optimist to avoid the too evident blasphemy of pessimism. Who wants to be a pe Who wants to be a pessimist? <laughs> but all the optimism of the age had been false and disheartening for this reason, that it had always been trying to prove that we fit in the world. The Christian optimism is based on the fact that we do not fit in the world. I tried to be happy by telling myself that man's an animal like every, this is the modern scientific mind, you know, we're a product of all these evolutionary forces and we're no different from animals. I tried to be happy by telling myself that man's an animal like any other which sought its meat from God. But now I was really happy for I learned that man is a monstrosity. I had been right in feeling all things as odd. I felt my, myself was at once worse and better than all things. The optimism's pleasure was prosaic, for it dwelt on the naturalness of everything. The Christian pleasure was poetic. The modern philosopher had told me again and again that I was in the right place, and I still felt depressed. God, here, I'm going to pick up this thing about suicide. If you grew up in a bourgeois world, that's our world, and you think if you have all these things, money, fame, pleasure, security, 
and suddenly you don't have those things or suddenly you realize all those things are not enough what do you do if that's all there is if that's all there is in the world and you've got it all what do you do with the leftover unhappiness that something's still missing what do you do why live for what do you live the modern bourgeois world says have all this and you'll be happy if that's the case why the suicides why alcoholism why drugs why any addictions the modern philosopher told me again and again that I was in the right place and I had felt depressed even in acquiescence how typical of that is for you young people today whose parents think if we if you've got all this you're gonna be happy because this is all we live for but I heard that I was in the wrong place and my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring the knowledge found out and illuminated forgotten chambers in the dark house of infancy I knew now why grass had always seemed to me as queer as the green beard of a giant and why I could feel homesick at home because this is our home and it's not our home we were meant to be someplace else remember one of the images that I've been giving you since the beginning is St. Augustine's image of the church it's we are a peregrine people a peregrine on a journey if we ever think that this is our home and then suddenly find out it's a maddening place why live this is not our home we're, we're voyagers passing through this goes to my very early point we, we are all of us in this room in exile we are on our way someplace else it's one of the reasons why we should have we should be taking very seriously the problem with immigration today people are in exile thinking to come to America because when they come to America they're gonna find a home what are they gonna find when they get here God. let me stop I made it Robert <laughs> let, let me stop let's stop <laughs> uh, I, let me stop. any questions or comments I, I I know I rushed through the, I know I rushed through the chapters but I think we covered them fairly adequately I mean we got I think we did justice to the most important next week we'll do the next two chapters we're going to do two chapters a week we'll do the next two chapters um, do you know what they are the paradoxes of Christianity and the paradoxes of Christianity and the eternal revolution this is really good the eternal the eternal revolution it's the fundamental place where every Christian should be. Let me stop. Any questions about um, the flag of the world or what he's doing with the way we should be standing in the world and fighting and suffering our cross, suffering our crosses? And I think he gave a scathing uh, description of suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thinking that now we have assisted suicide, medical suicide, and all this yep, stuff. Yep. And then he talked about the penny machine that would do suicide. This stuff has been planned for years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's just another way of showing how, I mean, how dark and... Yeah, now you couldn't even get it for a pen. God, it's just... Um, <laughs> I just thought it was just... He left no stone unturned when it came to suicide. I think he's been pretty good about everything he's covered he's so good um, in any questions or any comments before we stop
Okay, God, I did it. Close to it. <laughs> um, you guys have a good week. Stay safe. Um, um, be good. I know that's going to be hard for some of you. Mm-hmm.